There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The Late Lunch, brought to you by Blackstone Motors, Drogheda, Dundalk and Cavan. Save thousands on the Renault Megane E-Tech 100% electric for the month of September and drive off with an electric vehicle bonus and SEAI grant. See blackstonemotors.ie. A very good afternoon to you and welcome to The Late Lunch. I'm Orla Carmody and I'm filling in for Jerry Kelly for the next week or so. And uh, we gave him time off for good behaviour. It has to be said he's off enjoying himself, I hope. And it is a very great pleasure for me to fill in for the legendary Jerry, of course, and to be back on LMFM. And I have another reason to be personally happy today and to be happy to be with you. And that is my son passed his driving test this morning and I'm so proud of him. And, you know, I was thinking about it afterwards and, you know, we always here in life, um, you can't control the things you can't control and don't stress them and work on the things you can control. And it's a really good message and a learning for all of us. And, you know, when I saw him going out the door, I thought I have a feeling he's going to pass because he looked really smart. He'd made a great effort. The car was spotless. His sister's car, it has to be said, was spotless. And I know the the, uh, examiners have to follow their marking scheme. But I think, again, it probably helps he's about 25. So maybe maybe it's harder for an examiner, a, a car testing examiner, to actually allow an 18 year old through. I think it must be harder for them. I think they have to be very exceptional to get through. But it's back to that thing about perception. Perception is everything. And if you work on the perception and the good impression you can give. But anyway, it worked in our case. And I'm really, really happy and, and proud of my son. We're now going to have a little change of pace. This is a tough story. Um, It's again featuring a young person, a young person. And if you are at home with your young people or if you're in the kitchen or if you're in the car, just to say this is about the suicide of a young person. And all of life is represented here, all the light and shade, the good and the bad, the ups and the downs. And sitting in front of me is Rebecca Griffin. You're very, very welcome, Rebecca. And she's here with me bravely and strongly and taking her time to tell us to take those moments, those precious moments with our young people, to look up from scrolling on the phone. And I'm the worst offender for that. I can't I can't focus on anyone else. I'm the worst. But to really take the time to look at our young people, to hear them, to listen to them so that we understand more, maybe all of their complexity, the ups and downs, the light and shade, the things that's going on in, in our life. Rebecca, tell us about Ryan, your beautiful boy. Yeah, um, he was 14 years of age. He was full of life, um, football mad, you know, played for Dalik, um from when he was about five or six. I think he was 
pretty much born running with a, a football in his hand. Um, he, you know, full of life, full of enthusiasm. Um, any type of sport he would throw himself into, whether it was jiu-jitsu, he played Gaelic for a time, soccer, um, you know, was involved with the playing for the, the or training with the gym around the corner and just, you know, lit up a room as soon as he came in. Um, it just it was just fun to be around him. So a busy, active, normal 14 yeah. year old. And without going into any detail, because that's not why you're here today, you're here today very much to tell us to, to spend that time with, with, with our children and with our young people. Um, Tell us a bit about the support you got after the incident. I, I think you said your neighbours were amazing. Delik as a community has been phenomenal, phenomenal to us. Um, we've had obviously every neighbour, you know, all of the kids that would have played out in the street with Ryan growing up. Um, we've had local shops the day of his funeral, the whole of Delik shut down. Um, all of the schools came out, you know, even we had strangers in the street come up to us to talk to us that that didn't know us but recognised Ryan from going around the village with a dog um, you know we've we had we had people dropping shopping on the doorstep we had people leaving gift vouchers and um, dog treats in, in the local shops that didn't know where we lived but just knew of Ryan and the dog um, it's also be, just been phenomenal um, we did a unofficial darkness into light in 2022 which was just it was supposed to be just family and friends because of what Pieta stands for and what the work that they do and the help that they've given us. And, you know, when we opened the front door that morning, I, I couldn't see I couldn't see a gap. You know, our driveway was full. The green outside the house was full. The entrance to the estate just couldn't couldn't see the road. Um, so then last year we we did another unofficial event and we had the same numbers of people turning up. You know, the, the community spirit is definitely very, very strong out there. And I, I think what you're saying is, first of all, your neighbours and friends in Dulik are fabulous and, mm-hmm. and all all kudos to them. But I think you're also saying they're that kind of sense of there, but for the grace of God, go I. This can happen to any family. It can. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, all of his friends and his his workmates from... He had a summer job working in in the business park behind us, just kind of helping out a couple of mornings a week there, and just the ripple effect, the the shock that that hit the community um, a- after what happened. He um, and the impact that that has on every life. You know, we'd we'd people that that didn't know him massively that have reached out to me. People have reached out, sending messages. You know, people just saying, "I'm a mother. I have kids similar age." You know, or people from around the town that maybe I don't know that would send would phone and say listen I don't know you but my son or daughter was in school with Ryan and just the shock and then the impact that that has you know I suppose on us as a family we we understand the grief that that hits straight away when somebody passes away but for even even strangers that that don't know us that they're sharing your grief you know people I suppose it's people don't think that it's going to happen to them. We definitely didn't think it was going to happen to us. You you live your life expecting that, you know, your grandparents are going to pass away, your parents will eventually pass away. It's kind of the natural order of things, but you never expect it with a child. 
Obviously, suicide is an all too familiar, horrible phenomenon in our society and increasingly so. At 14, Ryan was very young. Yeah. Very, very young. Did did that, did Pieta, and I know Pieta House were a wonderful help and a support to you and to his teammates and, and, and so on. How did that come about? How did you reach out to them? And the fact that he was so young, did that give you, I hope, extra services or extra supports? Um, well, to be honest, the, when, when everything happened, there's just this nothingness, you know, you don't know what to do. You're... You know, you know, uh, at the age I am, and you're almost looking around for the adult in the room to take over the situation and, and show you and guide you. Um, and Sharon Kogan, a, a local, uh, she's a senator now. Um, she actually reached out. She called down to the house and she said, "I've contacted Pieta on your behalf. Um, they do a lot of good work." And I hear a contact. She gave me a card for um, a suicide liaison officer, who. I just phoned randomly one day. I found the the card in the wallet and and picked up the phone and rang her. And she's definitely provided a lifeline to to us. She came out. You know they're only supposed to come out a handful of times to the house. They referred us for counselling. Um, she called out to the house, and it was almost like having an older aunt or something like that that would come in, would have a conversation with us, would have a conversation with my son, um, Dylan, about you know what he's interested in, what his hobbies are. And could go back and forth if you wanted to sit down and just say, look, I'm having a really bad day. Or if you wanted to tell her that something really good happened or even just to talk about Ryan, talk about what happened. And, and she was brilliant. How old is Dylan? He is 12 now. And how do you talk to Dylan about it? And how do you help Dylan to get his head around what happened to his brother? Um, Himself and his brother were very, very close. There's three years and 11 months between them. You would think that they were... You know, Dylan was born almost thinking he was the same age. He always wanted to do what Ryan was doing. He followed him around like a lost puppy, you know. Um, And that's left a massive gap in his life now. But the way we talk to Dylan about it, it's personally, I think it's just a case of sitting down and being honest with him. You know, if I'm having a bad day, I'll tell him I'm having a bad day. As a result of that, he comes to me and tells me he's having a bad day. Um he's quite a different personality he's quite blunt if he's not feeling good he'll come and tell you he's not feeling good if he wants to be left alone he'll tell you he talks and, and he will he'll sit down with myself and my husband and, and say what's on his mind and you know like this year he started secondary school that was a big milestone for us Um, and you know he was able to sit down and talk to us about any worries he had any stresses he had and it's just about making time really to do that and in terms of what you have told us in the sense that you wanted to say to us all as parents or aunts or uncles or anybody who is in touch with young people. I know it's not watching out for signs because sometimes there aren't any. What can we do? I think it's just important that, you know, you see it with kids all the time. I talk to my friends about this when when, um, you know, when you tell them to go to bed and then all of a sudden they have a pain or they want a glass of water and it's just to take the extra bit of, you know, two minutes to say, look, is there anything else going on? Is there anything you want to talk about? Did, did something happen today? And sometimes it might just be, no, I just want to drink. But sometimes it might be, actually, can I sit down and talk to you for five minutes? And do you feel that sometimes as parents, we're a bit absent? Well, life is really, really busy. Both myself and my husband work full time. You know, we the two boys, they, they were have to be in every activity that's going 
um, and then they have friends coming and going and you know sometimes you know you're tired and you just want to sit down but you have to take the the time to talk to them and, and make sure that they know you're available and that nothing else is is important. What is the future holding for you now, Rebecca, and your family in terms of your focus on fundraising for Pieta House? And and what else are you going to fill your life with? Because this is going to be so important for you. Yeah, like for me, I have to keep busy. And if, if I can do anything to prevent any other family to be in the same situation that we're in now, I will do it. I will talk to parents. I will come on the radio shows and help journalists write articles. Um, for me, it's about fundraising. Like Pieta have been a massive support to us. On I know they also do an awful lot of work on the other side of it with people who are struggling and people who do reach out. And I just think that's so important. So that's that's my main focus now. And I think Sunday is World Suicide Prevention Day. So I'm doing an upsell for Pieta on uh, on Sunday morning. Where are you doing that? In a quarry in Dawkey. <laughs> So. That I said you were brave sitting down there, and I actually didn't know about that bit. So that is very brave. Have you ever abseiled before? I did. I did an abseil last year for Suicide to Survive off Croke Park. So this one is going to be not as high. <laughs> Good. And also, you're hoping that Pieta House, the informal Darkness into Light walk yes. that you organised, that it might become one of the organised ones. It is. As of Wonderful. this year, we've I filled out paperwork yesterday to become the chairperson of the committee for Delique. So officially. In 2024, there will be a, a Darkness into Light venue in, in Dulic. And it'll be in Ryan's memory, it no will be, doubt, yeah, in Ryan's yeah. memory. I can't let you go. In the last minute we have, Rebecca, tell me about Bailey the dog. <laughs> tell me about Bailey. The uh, pictures are beautiful. He is a bundle of madness. He's half half pug, half French bulldog. He fits perfectly into our family and uh, he was Ryan's best friend, you know, and he still pines for him. And that people around the village even dropped in dog food too. Yeah, yeah. How <laughs> wonderful is that? Yeah, yeah. How wonderful is that? Well, Rebecca Griffin, thank you so much for coming in to us today and telling us all about your lovely boy, Ryan, and his pet, Bailey, and, and your other son. And the best of luck uh, in the future. And I hope that abseil goes very well for you on Sunday. Thank you. Thank you indeed. The Late Lunch, brought to you by Blackstone Motors, Drogheda, Dundalk and Cavan. Buy the amazing new Opel Astra, Crossland or Grandland and get a trade-in booster, fuel voucher and low APR finance, saving you thousands. Book your test drive now. See blackstonemotors.ie. What a heart-rending piece that was. And Rebecca Griffin, so brave and courageous to come in and talk to us about it. It's only a year and a half since she lost her lovely boy, Ryan, um, at the age of 14 to suicide. And wonderful to hear that lovely little shout out to local Senator Sharon Kogan, who obviously stepped in very fast there in Dulik and got uh, Rebecca and her family linked up with Pieta House. No consolation, but all of these things help so much in those dark, dark, dark um, early days. So great to hear how the community in Dulik uh, worked so well to support Rebecca and her family. Moving on now to the Late Town races coming up uh, very, very soon. And we're joined on the line by Jessica Cahalan, who is the new general manager of the course. Jessica, you're very welcome. Thank you very much. 
Jessica, I have to start by saying, obviously, with a beach race, and we love the beach race in East, East Meath. It is, it is such a phenomenal part of our culture and our heritage and deserves to be protected. But obviously, there were injuries to horses quite dramatically in 1994. I know long before your time, but it was something to do with the track, you know, because it's a beach track that holes can open up suddenly. And then, of course, obviously, last year, that awful tragedy in on Ross Bay Strand in Kerry, where Jack de had the young pony rider. So I think we're a little bit more conscious of health and safety on beach races. Tell me as a new manager, how have you taken on this mantle? Well, I mean, health and safety for for um, spectators, jockeys and horses is absolutely paramount. So on the morning of the races, um, there's been a lot of changes since the 90s. So we, we only have uh, seven and six furlong races. So just short of a mile races. So it, it's a straight uh, so there's no bends or anything like that uh, during the racing. Um, but a team of people from Punches t- uh, from Punchestown, Fairy House, Leopardstown and Belliestown especially uh, come. And they, these guys are working on, on race courses every day. Um, so they come and they put the track in place. And then it's, 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 they walk the track, make sure that everything is 100% safe. It's past fit for racing. They're on the track all through racing, ensuring that nothing uh, is happening or changing um, with the sand. And so they're, they're just on hand to ensure that um, everything is, is 100%. So as soon as the tide goes out, obviously the, the tractors and the scrapers go in and they start preparing the track. And then you're saying so to me that people are then monitoring it throughout to make sure no changes occur. Yeah, they're monitoring throughout. And if um, anything needs to be done, they're, they're there on hand to do it immediately. Um, but yeah, once, once the tide goes out on Tuesday morning, a team of people arrive and the railings are put down, the ropes, the, the running railings, the finish line, everything's been put in place. The starting stalls are, are put in place, uh, ready for racing on our first race at 4.45. That's absolutely wonderful. And I know it's a very much a festival theme. There's food and music. Tell us a bit about that. So, yeah, so our gates will open at uh, two, between 2.30 and 2.45. Um, we have lots of car parks dotted around Laytown uh, so, and free shuttle buses running from the car park to the gate. Uh, within the enclosure, we have um, a huge selection of food vendors. So there's going to be things like pinchos, uh, burgers and chips, fish and chips, crepes, ice cream, hot dogs, um, all those kind of lovely things. And then there'll be a uh, music, a jazz band playing in the food kind of court area. There'll also be a, a live music in the, the bar marquee. Uh, we'll also have face painting and a balloon artist for for the kids. And we just hope that uh, we get a lovely day like we have today. I'm here at the moment. It's absolutely uh, wonderful when the sun shines. So that's next Tuesday, is, the 12th, beautiful. starting at um, uh, quarter to three, as you said. And hopefully it's, it's well worth taking a day off work, isn't it? Even if it's midweek oh, ab- day, take the day off and go. It is absolutely worth it. And if, if we're blessed with the day like today, um, it'll be so worth your trip. It's so unique, such a unique event. It only happens once a year. Um, so late on the 12th is I think the place to be Well Jessica um, I think you're the first female um, manager of Laytown ever best of luck in your role I hope you have a wonderful uh, festival this year and we look forward to you being in that role for many years to come thanks for joining well, us on thank LMFM Thank you so much Thank you Take care you can, of course, text us or send in a WhatsApp message if you want to comment on anything we have here. And it's 86 658 And we'll take a break. The Late Lunch, brought to you by Blackstone Motors, Drogheda, Dundalk and Cavan. Test drive the all-new AA award-winning 232 Dacia Jogger today. The most affordable seven-seater on the market with exclusive roof box. See blackstonemotors.ie. 
We watch TV. TV themes with Jerry Kelly on the Late Lunch. Remember that TV movie we saw? TV, TV, TV. Now. There's a nice one. Louise was just saying it sounds magical. It's a great show. It's a long time on TV. And if you know the answer, you know what to do. You can text us or WhatsApp us as usual and the little prize might be yours. And we'll announce it before the end of the show. And the number to text or WhatsApp is as usual, 086 1800 658. That's 086 1800 658. If you know the theme tune of that TV show. So now... In Between Worlds, The Journey of the Famine Girls is a new book and it's just launched by local author Nicholas Pierce and she joins us now in studio. Nicola, you're very welcome. Lovely to have you. And I'm delighted to be here. Thank you so much, Orla. You know what? I was reading this book the other night and Jerry asked me, he said, now here's a book and it's a young person's or a children's book written by Nicola and um, she's a great author and, and have a little skim through it. I didn't skim through this Nicola, I read every word in one sitting. Halfway through, I poured a large glass of wine and kept going. It was that good. (laughs) So how are you writing for young people? And yet it's wonderfully readable by an adult. I always hope, I think um, when I'm writing, I don't, I don't concentrate on a picture of one reader. I'm hoping that, you know, because I think writing my history, the the themes are universal. So I would hope when I write something, it could be read by anybody with any age. Uh, male or female or whatever and that's always my hope that I'm going to be able to communicate uh, my feelings or a fictional account of a historical episode that would appeal across right across the board I would never limit myself I'd never kind of think right this book is only for nine uh, years of age to 12 years of age and that's all I should write for so I just allow myself to just the freedom I suppose just to, to go and write well, you do and you succeed because it is your writing style. I have to say it's very clean. It's very taut, but it's very pacey. It just keeps pulling you in. And again, the shorter sentences, the shorter constructions you use. Is that to aim it for young people or is that just the way you write? I think that's just the way that I write. And I always know, um, like I try to write 2000 words a day. That's my magic number. Okay. Some writers go for 500 words. I've known some writers that have gone from 5000 words. 2000 is my magic number. And if that is going well, that flows. And I do find that my pace quickens and I am accidentally writing shorter sentences that are faster to write. But it really means I'm in the moment. I'm actually there and I'm hoping I'm bringing the reader straight there with me. Now, you're not a historian. You told no. me just before we came on air. So how did you develop all this wonderful interest in history? And I presume you have to try and make it as accurate as possible. Yeah, absolutely. Months and months of research go into each book before I start writing, which can be nerve wracking then if I've got something wrong. But I mean, when I was in school, English and history were always my two favourite subjects. Uh, and I never studied um, history at third level. Uh, so I would never call myself a historian, but I would just say I'm passionate about history. And I do believe it's one of the most important subjects that we teach in school. I'm just being signalled there to turn your mic up a little. Okay. Maybe just pull it a little bit closer to you there, Nicola, and Rant. hopefully we'll get the volume yeah. there. Thank you, because we don't miss any of your very important <laughs> words. Now, this story is in between worlds, as we said, the journey of the famine girls. And I think why it kept me really hooked and interested um, 
it kind of was a bit chilling in terms of and beautifully written and a lovely way of framing the story and the characters were wonderful but chilling in the kind of overtones of nearly The Handmaid's Tale about it that these girls you know beautiful young girls in Ireland victims of the famine found themselves in workhouses and then under the Earl Grey scheme somebody had this notion that they would provide nice wives and domestic servants for the colonies that is so chilling isn't it? It is and yeah I something I never heard of before. It was my editor told me about this story and uh, her friend, uh, one of her relatives, her uh, ancestors was one of these girls. So some of them had a, a bad end. Basically, they were, you know, it was over 4,000 girls between 1848 and 1850. They volunteered to leave Ireland, exchange Ireland for Australia. Now, I'm pretty sure most of them had no idea where Australia was or how far away it was. We're talking about 14, 15-year-olds who've watched their family die from starvation. Now they're in the most horrific place, which is the workhouse, and they were ferociously overcrowded. So we have the scheme, um, was the brain of, I suppose, a, a British man, Earl Grey. Uh, he was second. I'm not sure I'm going to drink his tea anymore, yeah, and I used I to know, love it. I know. So all these girls, I mean, it would have seemed like a wonderful opportunity. We get to leave the workhouse because the worst, well, those two bad things about the workhouses. Number one is that families were separated. Once you went in, men and women separated, boys and girls separated. Once your child reached two years of age, it was taken from you and put into the children's block. So mothers and children separated. Uh, and then the second worst thing was that I didn't realise is that women probably were never going to leave the workhouse. So men would have been kind of given uh, priority when it came to education if there was enough space and room for classes. And the idea is that men could leave because they would be able to get work. Women probably not, probably useless, so we might as well keep them here. So that was like um, a sort of prison situation. But as the uh, famine continued on from year to year, that became, I mean, over 4,000 people died in the workhouse in Skibbereen. You know, and that's the same amount of girls that got on 30 boats between 1848 and 1850 and volunteered to sail off to Australia. But really, most of them had no idea what was ahead of them. So then you get... um, a couple of the ships took off and then things went bad and suddenly the Irish girls, uh, there was a great turning against them. The newspapers in Australia, they were knocking them for being uh, Catholic, Irish and women. So by the time some of those ships got over there, nobody wanted to give the Irish girl jobs. Well, interestingly, um, obviously, if they're being sent over to be wives and domestic servants, they expect them to have some sort of training or decorum or something. Now, they were able to read and write because they had to be to be part of the scheme. But when you look at the life they left behind and the famine and the poverty, is it any wonder they mightn't have known how to tie shoelaces correctly or what have you? I just want to read one passage here. And it was that thing of the famine scheme of building walls and, you know, people put to work for building walls and your heroine in the story Maggie um, is leaving the scene to take her mother away and and here's the little piece Dada and the others would have to build bridges and roads without us and I did not care if I never saw any of them again Sarah could have offered to help me carry Mama home but she avoided my eye Mama sighed as I pressed against her to shoulder her weight I kept her to the right of me while Sean stuck to my left keeping me between him and Mama he was scared it was a slow torturous journey made in silence how I wished I could stop my thoughts too instead I was taunted with memories of 
skipping down the same road in easier times. Sean and I racing each other home, the sun in our backs, the fields either side of us awash with life and my arms only carrying buttercups. I would never have believed that a person's life could change so much. That is beautiful writing, Nicola. (laughs) It's beautiful. It's Mm. simple, but I said it's pacey, it's structured, it's wonderful and it's evocative. Yeah, thank you so much. I really wanted to get that thing across like how did my life come to this because that was what struck me about it and I took pains to make to try and show what life was like before the famine the potato went bad and basically people did live on potato but they were very healthy there was loads of potatoes mm. so the Irish peasants when people tourists coming in they were all overweight and rosy cheeked and you know life was really really good and then this change that comes in pure devastation of families of lives and then, as you say, how it impacts on these girls, 4,000 girls left for Australia under the scheme. It's absolutely yeah. extraordinary. And you said, you know, how attractive it must have seen. Yeah, a boat trip, this fabulous country in the sun. And you capture as well, very well, the trunk. Each one of these yeah. girls under the Earl Gay scheme scheme was given a trunk of clothing. Tell yeah. me about that because that to a young girl of 14 or 15 would be the most exciting thing that ever happened to her. Absolutely. Most of these girls probably never wore a pair of shoes in their lives. They were wearing hand-me-downs and really when the famine kicked in, uh, all the, there was a lot of girls just had nothing to wear. I think the uh, material just fell apart. So now we have this uh, trunk that was being made available to each girl. So there was dresses, there was two pairs of shoes, there was handkerchiefs, there was petticoats, there was overcoats. This was like an entire wardrobe of brand new clothes that nobody else had ever worn and they were going to be given this for free. I mean, it really must have been quite something. And it probably helped to kind of distract them from the fact that they were stepping away from Ireland forever. Uh, I'm pre- I just I, in my soul, I just believe most of those girls, those 14, 15 year olds just didn't understand that that was what was happening. They were leaving Ireland forever more because it was very uh, a rarity now to get to Australia and then got all the way back again. Um, So a lot of them, when they got to Australia, uh, within six, seven years, they had six or seven children. Um, They were marrying a lot of convicts because that was what the population was. And much older men. Much older men. Now that worked out for some of them. Mm -hmm. So some of them would have married very older, older men, men who had businesses, owned hotels or something like that. Then the man dies and the woman takes over the running of it. So there's quite a legacy of these girls in Australia today. Some of these women have fantastic careers and proved themselves um, very strong and dependable didn't need the husband he died and then you have the other side of it some poor thing married off to some alcoholic uh, and never heard of again so there's always two sides to every story Uh, and then some of the girls for them. I've read cases where a couple of 16 year olds took their employers to court so they arrived in Australia a job was found for them. They had to keep that job for at least the first year. They were being paid very, you know, I think it was £8 a year. And a couple of them actually went to court. Now we're talking about 16-year-old Irish girls who probably didn't have much schooling and they won their cases. So, I don't know, I think it's amazing when you're really pushed to the brink, a big change comes into your life and you really learn about yourself. And you capture that so well, as I said, your heroine Maggie and her friend Sarah and, you know, as you say, the strength they had to find. And then even when we get a glimpse of Maggie in older age and no spoiler alerts, but again, you get a sense of a feisty, feisty, wonderful older woman who's looking back. But, you know, nationwide during that time, I read somewhere that the population dropped by two million in five years. And we, we know very little about what happened to them, whether they perished, how many emigrated, because on this side, many of them are illiterate. There's no... Yeah. very little 
written record, but obviously better records existing on the far side in Australia for those who did well. Yeah, and I mean, the book, I I could have picked one of 30 ships and the one I picked uh, had the nicest, bestest uh, kind of ship surgeon. Um, Charles Strutt, who really cared for them. He was English, but in fact, he sounds to me like he was sort of a hippie, kind of. Yeah, <laughs> for his day. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he really, he called the girls my girls and he, he, he wanted to fatten them up and he wanted to prepare them. So, I mean, on the ship, they had these classes to prepare them for uh, employers, prepare them for jobs, prepare them for what might happen. But Charles Strutt also made sure that they play, continued to play their own music. They sang their own Irish ballads. He wanted the girls to remember where they came from and to bring that culture with them. So he really was a modern, a very forward thinking guy. Um, and I know I'm trailing off now and I forgot what the initial question no, was. No, it's absolutely <laughs> fabulous. And again, your your research is, is just so interesting there. And obviously you, you, you dig into the story yeah. so well. I'm looking at your other raft of books that you have out and the spirit of the Titanic, the city of fate about yeah. Stalingrad, behind the walls, the story of Derry in 1689. And of course, Captain Sir John Franklin. You've picked such romantic, interesting yeah. stories. Now, I am going to actually read a couple of more of your books, oh. even even if they're aimed at young people because I love them and as I said they're well written and they're pacey and indeed I'm going to recommend one of them to my book club (laughs) we will actually uh, read it and enjoy it no doubt but the um, the Chasing Ghosts the story of Sir John Franklin again a lovely lovely story and I don't know I haven't read your book as I said but obviously his wife was a force force of nature Lady Jane Franklin and there's a beautiful uh, there's a beautiful history around her and her contribution to the colonies and education and schools and she tried to do so much more but they were trying to find the Northern Passage. Yes. And he failed. And then Lady Jane, you know, she gets up ships Navy. and takes yeah. on the Navy and takes up everybody to find yeah. her husband. What a yeah. fabulous story. Yeah. Absolutely. It was, you know, it's it's funny that you mentioned that. They took off. So those two ships left England in 1845, just as famine is hitting Ireland. We have this other story. 130 men on board two ships. Lord John Franklin was in charge of this and they were to find the last... Uh, oh gosh, 300 miles, I think, of the Northwest Passage. And England was in a rush to find it because whoever had it meant that they owned this fantastic trading route. So there was Americans out looking for it, the Russians were looking for it. Uh, and just Danish, to position it ge- geographically, right at the top it's of the world, right at the top the of Baffin Island yeah, up there at right. Greenland, exactly. Yeah. There was a belief that once you passed the Arctic, once you went right to the top of the globe, that the temperature would warm again so there'd be no ice. So some people didn't believe in anything called the Northwest Passage, but others believed that there was this long long passageway from one on one side of the world to the other, ice free. Connecting around. the Atlantic yeah. and the Pacific. That's yeah. Right. So Lord John Franklin and then he was in charge of the whole expedition, a British um captain, and then his second in command was Francis Crozet from Bambridge. So uh, I actually fell in love with Francis, Francis Crozet. Bambridge is about an hour away from here and his house that he grew up is there and there's this marvellous uh, statue to him and his ship sitting in the middle of uh, Bambridge. So it's a, a devastating story, but again about courage. You've got these fellas going off to explore something. They have no idea how long they're going to be away for. So the ships were fitted out with engines from steam uh, steam trains. So they were the strongest ships ever sent out to crash their way through the ice. That was the plan. And they were given enough food for three years, but they really thought they'd be home within two years. And not one of those 130 men were ever seen again. It's a story I'd never heard of it. What a story. What a story. In all of the um, talk about Sinead O'Connor recently and her passing and the 
various albums she had and one of my favourite albums was one called Shanos Nua and on that she had a track about Lord Franklin and it's a beautiful track listen to it when you go home but it's that thing of uh, Lady Jane and you know £10,000 I would freely give to know Lord Franklin and where he is and she just kept kitting out these ships and sending them off I think seven in total and she was a strong strong woman again so you capture these wonderful characters obviously in, in your history and in your research Yes and she there's a great uh, connection with Dundalk because it's Francis McClintock from Dundalk he she kissed him out um, with the silver fox uh, his ship so this is uh, Lord John Franklin's wife Jane now there could have been a bit of guilt she encouraged him to take hold of this expedition he was 59 years of age he was very overweight very unfit and the last time he'd done anything like this was uh, near over 10 years earlier and he had had to eat his boots to survive um, so she pushed him to do it so I imagine there was she had an awful lot of guilt then when he never came home but she took on the Admiralty she actually sold up her house and moved next door to the British Admiralty to make force them to keep sending out ships to look for them just to annoy yeah. them yeah well, you, that particular book is called, um, remind me, goats. Chasing Goats. Yes. And your current one is called The Journey of the Famine Girls in Between Between. Worlds, The Journey of the Famine Girls by Nicola Pierce. Recommend them highly for the young readers in your life. But read them yourself too, because you'll absolutely love them. They're brilliant. Nicola, thank you so much for coming oh, in to us today. The Late Lunch, brought to you by Blackstone Motors, Drogheda, Dundalk and Cavan. By the amazing new Opel Astra, Crossland or Grandland. And get a trade-in booster, fuel voucher and low APR finance, saving you thousands. Book your test drive now. See blackstonemotors.ie. Now, a former or a retired Garda sergeant gives safety talks on the use of quad bikes and he's now opened a new training school in his retirement because there are new regulations on the use of quads and we've all heard of the accidents around them and anything we can learn at all from this obviously is very welcome. Dane Cairns, uh, good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, how are you? I'm good, thanks, Dane. And obviously, um, there's a problem with quad bikes in that they're fun, they're fast, we all love having a go at them, but they're more powerful than you might think, aren't they? Oh, they are, you know, there's no doubt about it. And that's why, I suppose, over the last number of years, we have seen a number of accidents with them <clears throat> from people, some who are used to them, but others who just maybe have no experience and then maybe they get down them for the first time and unfortunately, when an accident does happen on a quad, sometimes they can be very fatal. And that's the reason, quite likely, why this new legislation and the new mandatory training uh, certification for quads is coming in on the 20th of November this year. So under this legislation, any quad bikes in use in a workplace, the driver has to wear helmets and they have to successfully complete a training course. But I suppose the grey line is what constitutes a workplace. Is a farm a workplace? A workplace is a farm, it could be forestry, it could be somebody working on the roads, maybe a construction site, or even an emergency service. Literally, any any business that's using a quad in connection with work uh, would fall under these new uh, uh, guidelines and new uh, the new regulations, basically. And what about in the home and what about people using them around their own land that it isn't officially a workplace or a farm or a forest? Yeah, well, if it's not, like the people themselves, like they have to be able to, if it really come into its own, if there's an accident, and then they would have to be able to determine that it wasn't used in connection with the work. But if it's in any way a connection, whether it's the owner of a farm, whether it's the owner of a construction site, if the, 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 the quad itself is used in or operated 
in any way in relation to work. Uh, they have to follow these these regulations. I suppose that's that's the reality of it. And um, I read, I think, there that they have been, thankfully, no recorded um, work-related fatalities to date this year, and we'd hope it would stay that way. But between 2013 and 2022, there have been 11 um, serious accidents or indeed fatalities relating to bikes. It's too many, isn't it? Oh, it is a far too many. And, you know, I'd say I would hate even to count the number of near misses or near accidents that would probably... You, you know, surpass those sort of figures, you know. I mean, I think nearly everybody working in the court at some stage will have a near miss. It, it, it's, you know, it's just the nature of the business of the terrain, the nature of the terrain, and that's why the training is so important for them coming in here now in, in a couple of weeks' time. And, you know, people should avail of it even before it comes in, before that date, the 20th of November. And I suppose that's why the, there's been so much emphasis on it, trying to get the word out there, you know, whether it's from ourselves, insurance companies or just general advertising it's really important and really everybody who buys a quad you know even where it's not for work they need to learn how to use it properly and and use it as a with the same respect they would treat a car or treat a motorbike or something like that it's not a toy oh far from it you know because as you said earlier on there like they they do they, they can go very very fast you know 30 40 50 60 kilometers an hour and maybe some of them they might be even more powerful than that. So people underestimate, you know, the, the speed that these machines are capable of doing. And in untrained hands, like there's no doubt about it, or even going on 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 terrain that they're not familiar with. And that's why part of the regulations, like the the, the people themselves are supposed to carry a risk assessments or, or at least have risk assessments conducted. Because it's really important that when you're, you're taking on one of these machines, you know, uh, uh, we all want to drive it at, at a reasonable pace, but there's some who who just like to drive it at a, at a pace that's beyond their capabilities. And that's why the training, we, we keep on emphasising the training, the training will actually educate them as the dangers that, that can be affected if things go wrong. And we've seen too many of these accidents in the past, you know. I'll come back to you in a moment on the training, Dane. Uh, stay on the line there. I want to go to former IFA President John Dillon. John, you're very welcome to LMFM. And John, you had an accident a number of years ago on a quad and I believe you nearly lost your leg. Yes, I did indeed. I, I, nearly, I nearly lost my life as well. Funny, but, uh, the way things worked out, I, I didn't... Um, there was some of my sons were far away and they, they were able to take off my belt and put it around my, my leg to stop the bleeding and, and keep in touch with the ambulance crew at the same time. John, would you mind so, just moving the phone a little closer to your mouth so we can hear you? Just if you take the phone a little bit closer, and we'll, we'll hear you a bit better because yeah. I really do want to hear this story. Um, so yeah. you were working on your farm a number of, of years ago and what exactly happened? Um, I was bringing cow, cattle in out of the field and um, trying to get them in a gate in the middle of a field. <coughs> it's not so easy to get them, get them in. They can run it any, anywhere. Oh, sure, they can be contrary, other. yeah. And there was heights and mo- um, mounts there, you know, kind of slight heaps about 10 feet high. And I was, in, I was going up on them. I was just crazy, I suppose, what I was doing. I was driving up in heights and back off of them again. And eventually, uh, the bike went to turn over and I broke my leg and the back wheel caught the leg and, and brought it, took, it, took it off and hung on with, with the skin. However, I was lucky that the surgeon that was on duty at the time was, a, was able to do the job for me. But other than that, I, w- I was gone. And so you're saying gone, your I, son used a belt and did he sort of make a tourniquet? Do you think you had a, a, a cut an artery? 
yes, my my leg was um, I was I, I bleated it in about a half an hour. Wow. Uh, was the son was there and he actually put the belt on the leg. Well, I I was able to tell him myself what to do, and but he was in touch with the ambulance crew while before they arrived, and he was releasing it and and. Opening it and closing it. That's what you do with the tourniquet. Well, weren't you so lucky your son was there? I was very lucky. Very lucky all the way. But but just on the whole idea of of training, uh, training is is great for the people that want to be trained. But a bike is bought by a farmer, by by the father or or, or an older brother or whatever. And then a younger guy gets up on that uh, bike at a late at a later date. And then we, we like danger. He only wants danger. A lot of these young people like danger, including myself when I was young too. We wanted danger. So how can we teach those guys not to be riding a bike with, that, with the danger that's in it? Well, obviously, that, as you say, if yeah. someone buys it in the house, well, anybody who's going to use it or anybody who's going to work on the farm needs to get the training, don't they? They can't be taking it yes. for granted. Yes, but what age? What age can you uh, ride a bike on then? I see young lads riding bikes uh, at five and six-year-olds. You mean motorbikes? Like yeah, uh, no, those bikes. Those the quads, bikes. the quad bikes, yeah. Yeah, I, I see them riding at five or six year, years old in the farm. Well, they, I suppose lad. they're smaller. Or are they toy versions? Or are, you, are you saying you've seen young no, kids? I'm talking about, I'm talking about big bikes. Big Serious bikes. ones. Oh, uh, my goodness. That's yeah, crazy. Yeah, big, crazy. Big bikes. 200, of CC and 300 CC and 400 CC. But John, you're life. well now, are you? Have you fully recovered and you're well oh, and you're walking properly? I'm, I'm, I'm almost perfect. Almost, I'd say 99%. Good. Uh, and I, I, I walked to Dublin since this happened. So, um, and I found charity, of course. All so, right. Anyway, that, that, that's, um, my, I'm going okay. I mean, no fear of me. But, but the thing that can happen, that people putting their legs out when a bike was overturned, it's an instinctive thing, it. yeah. It's an instinctive thing. It's yeah. actually expected that's what you'll do as a as a uh, an individual. You'll plow your leg when the bike is over top. All right, John. Thank you. I'm going to go okay. back today now because I just want to hear about the um, the the training and what you're recommending. But that's John Dillon, the former president of the IFA, and thanks a million for joining us, John. Back to you, Dane. What are you suggesting regarding training and particularly that point that John made that, you know, somebody in a family buys a, a quad, they might do the training. But what about somebody else jumping on it when it's just there parked in the garage? <clears throat> yeah, look, I suppose that goes back to parent responsibility, you know, that the parents will have to take some sort of responsibility to try and ensure that that doesn't happen. You know, that's the reality of it. You know, but when it comes to the training itself, you know, the training, like like myself, I'm one of the Lantra certified trainers. You know, if you're going to get training, you have to go to a registered training provider, which is which is uh, similar or to a QQI similar standard, you know. Uh, I have that training there, Lantra. You know, and I suppose the bottom line is, you know, the training, it's a full day's training. There's quite a lot, an awful lot covered in during the course of the day. Uh, and the whole idea is to make sure that people get the proper training, you know, they learn all about the quads, the safety, how to look after themselves, carrying loads, using trailers. Everything too. So there's quite an awful lot covered during the course of the day in it, and it, uh, like it is, the cert lasts for five years, which is which is very good in relation to to the new regulations there itself. So they can get in contact with, with any any registered training provider uh, or myself. On um, where do you run your it. own uh, training courses, Dane? 
uh, over at the at, at, over my, my at where where the business is located in in outside Kells in Carnaross. Carnaross, and your business is called DH. Okay, safety. Sure safety. People will find yeah. you online. And tell me, obviously, during that full day training, do they actually drive on quads across different kinds of terrains, the kind of bumps and hilly country John oh, Dillon was talking about? Yes, we can do it one or two ways. We can do it on the people's uh, workplace itself, whether we can use their terrain, providing it it, 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 it supports all, all the, the actions that we want to during the day, or we ha- I have a training course suitably designed in such a way to cover all the bumps, all the hills, uh, the rough ground, uh, the rough terrain, you know, so people get used to driving on rough terrain. So they're getting uh, a full day's experience and they'll be driving during the majority of the day because that's what it's all about. Because and obviously to- it's those bumps that can throw people. They can cause the machine to flip, can't they? Oh, yes, absolutely. And, and it, can be hap- it can happen very, very easy, even at a low speed. That's why you know, that's why we try to educate them. Finally, Dan, will we ever see the, the, the day, do you think, where you will have to have a licence to drive one in the same way as a car or a motorbike? Well, you do now, in fairness, because if you're driving it in a public place, uh, you know, you're going to need the licence uh, in relation to driving these, particularly when it's on the road. You know, it's once you're over 16, you can, you can apply for a licence for one of the quads, you know, so that is, that is already in place. Yeah. But obviously then around the farm and maybe... Maybe the sports end of it, maybe the, perhaps the, the, the government will look at that in, in years to come. But for the moment, uh, the, the, the new regulations are only relative to people who are used, operating the, the, the machine itself uh, in connection with the work. And maybe we'll finish with a very gentle suggestion to parents, maybe not to put six or seven year olds on a quad. Maybe what would you think, Dan? Oh, yeah, look, I mean, they, they, we have to we have to look after the young kids. Uh, you know, especially in, in a workplace, because look at every workplace has potential to cause cause major injury. And obviously, if something happens, you know, you never forgive yourself. I suppose that's I the reality of it. So we have to be sensible. All right, Dane Karens, thank you very much for joining us today. And that's DHK Safety Limited training for quads. Um, and you'll find that online if you're interested in that. And to lighten up the mood a little, Jerry has left us a little bit of comedy, which we'll come to after the break. So, did you know what it was? It's obviously a a lovely tune and as uh, Louise said earlier, kind of magical, kind of tinkly, but it's actually for Grand Designs, the interiors programme. And the winner of that uh, today is Deirdre Hi from Julianstown. So well done, Deirdre, for spotting your TV theme. And now we're going to hear some more music. Five, four, three, two... One. Counting down the top five songs from this week of yesteryear. And today it's... 1994 we're looking at. And a little bit of background. This song was originally recorded by English rock band The Trogs in 1967. I didn't know that. Thank you, Louise. And it was a top 10 hit in both the UK and the US. And it, of course, was recorded by numerous artists. But it was Wet, Wet, Wet's cover for the soundtrack to the 1994 film Four Weddings and a Funeral that made it an international hit. And it spent 
15 consecutive weeks at number one. And you know well this song, you will be singing along in just a moment. The film starred Hugh Grant and Andy McDowell and the track is, of course, Love Is All Around Us. Oh, I just love that song. Love Is All Around from Four Weddings and a Funeral. Brilliant movie and one to uh, make put on the list for winter watching. A cosy night now, Four Weddings and a Funeral would be one to watch, wouldn't it? Coming up next, uh, the preview of the sport. Well, we have to discuss that game last night and how we feel about it in the soccer and we've all the rugby to look forward to so uh, looking forward to that with the David Sheehan in just a few moments. So good afternoon David Sheehan we're going to have a look at the sports and I think we'll start with the bad news the soccer if that's okay with you and go on to the good news or what we hope is going to be the good news the rugby I suppose 2-0 last night yeah, that's fine. are we just glad that it wasn't 7-0 how do you feel? Um, yeah, I think I was glad it was it was as respectable as it turned out to be there. Um, I was worried before the game myself that it was going to be a bit of a whitewash that they could they could easily have ended up losing that game heavily, a lot more heavily than they did Ireland. So I think we have to be grateful for small mercies and in, in, in what happened last Indeed. night. Um, but you know, I, it's very hard to know really. Like Stephen Kenny has been obviously coming in for a lot of criticism. The games against the likes of France and probably you know the Netherlands on Sunday, they aren't going to be the games that that define his era. The games that, that probably will define him are the ones that have maybe happened already, the likes of the, the game against Greece where they lost. So yeah, last night was was probably what people would have expected because you know they're so good France. But um Sunday is going to be really difficult. Yeah, I mean we were unlucky really with the groups, weren't we? I mean, getting France and Netherlands straight off, it's just tough. They're just such good well, teams. Yeah, that's true. But I mean, I wouldn't have any great confidence in Ireland going out and beating anybody at the moment. So maybe, maybe that's a good. Maybe it's a good thing so that they got they got two 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 tough teams because if they'd gotten drawn against teams that they maybe felt like they had a chance of beating, like Greece would be a good example. Greece were, were the team that Ireland felt yeah. like they should, they needed to be get past and they couldn't do that. So. Um, it's just very hard to have any great optimism about things at the it moment. It is, it's isn't very, it? I, I'd love, I'd love to say there is, a, a, you know, a bit of a silver lining, but and even, even the little bit of the boost that we had with Evan Ferguson getting the hat trick last weekend that was taken away from us then when he gets injured and he doesn't play last night. So it, it's very difficult, and I think Sunday night could be another, another difficult outing. They'll be at home. There'll be a big crowd there. The crowd will get behind. Them. I mean, it's, it's the Irish supporters have been fully behind Stephen Kenny from the start, and he's, he's maintained that support, but. It's it's getting more and more difficult for him, and I think if they put in a creditable performance on Sunday, and maybe they can they can come away with a point, or maybe they can sneak a famous win. I I, I doubt it, but if they could, that'd be something else. But if they could get a, put in a good performance and get a point out of that game, it wouldn't be the worst, and it might stop the bleeding a little bit. It's going to be difficult, though. I want to come back to Evan Ferguson in just a moment, but tell me a little bit about Stephen Kenny, the manager. Obviously, you know, would you still have any sense of a benefit of the doubt to him, or do you think there's someone better could do the job in the sense that you know has the time for excuses just run out now? I don't know if anyone could do much better. I mean, it's it's you, you might have somebody to come in that could could come in and beat the likes of Greece, but is anybody going to come in and beat Holland and France? Certainly not. Um, certainly not France anyway. And I mean, I think Irish football is reaping the, the reaping what they've sowed, and they haven't sowed much over the last 15, 15 plus years or so in terms of youth development, in terms of developing young players. That's starting to improve now, but. I, I think any manager would struggle to, to do anything with the, with the squad of players they have. Um, it's been mentioned by plenty of people who are far better informed than I am that it's the weakest squad of players that Ireland have had in a long time. You just have to look at where they're all playing for their clubs versus, for example, France last night. So 
I think any manager would struggle with, with what they have. Some people would question the style of play that he's trying to employ, that the players aren't good enough, but I think he's trying to stick to that and bring it on and get us away from this long ball game, which wasn't really very successful for us anyway over the years, far back in the Jack Charlton time. So, I was about to say, it, wasn't that the Jack Charlton era, the yeah, long ball? Yeah, it was and, famous, and yeah. The, 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 the irony was that we had the, we had the best crop of players we probably ever had at that time and, and um, we, we still played a fairly direct style of football but they had success so you couldn't argue with it but it's I, I think to answer your question I don't think any manager out there could could do significantly better than Stephen Kenny is doing at the moment maybe maybe as I said you'd be, you'd be, you might be able to get past the likes of Greece but is, is any Ireland manager going to be able to go and beat France I, I wouldn't think so so just uh, a quick word on Evan Ferguson think, before we move yeah. on to the rugby, if you don't mind, Ed, Ed, David, mm-hmm. but just um, obviously 18 years old, a superstar. You wonder how good will he be by 28? But, you know, and you, and you saw, as you say, the, the, the hat trick against Brighton la, mm-hmm. last week, but he's he's suffering a lot of injuries. Is that very worrying for somebody so young or does he just put everything onto the pitch? Is that why? Yeah, I mean, he's had a couple of knocks already and, uh, you know, I think he had an ankle injury last year. He, but, you know, he's playing at such a high level now that you're going to pick up injuries like that here and there. I would like to think, it, it's obviously so early in his career, we can't really say. Um, I would like to think that there's nothing serious. What what you'd fear is something like a, a serious knee injury or even what happened to Michael Owen, where he just pulled the really bad hamstring injury early in his career that he never really got over. But I, I, I think it's a bit early to be getting too worried about that. Hopefully, like, the knee injury just seemed like a bit of a knock and, he, and hopefully he'll be back back again in an Ireland shirt pretty soon. You know? Hopefully so. On to the rugby. And we nearly get nervous when we're favourites. And <laughs> we've had, what, 13 wins unbroken or something like that. It's like mm. we nearly have a PTSD from the previous tournaments or that we never made it out of a quarter final. You know, yeah. settle us down there, David. Tell us it's all going to be fine. <laughs> Well, I mean, I, I think I'd suffer from a little bit of that myself. I mean, I, I remember the 07 World Cup, which was the one we were supposed to be going into as like real contenders. And it was an absolute catastrophe. Didn't get out of the group. Um, now, I think we're beyond that point now. And I think they do have a really good chance. And, you know, remaining tomorrow, they're going to win that game comfortably. There should be Tonga the next day. It's going to be just Scotland and South Africa games the last two matches or South Africa first and Scotland that are going to be the difficult ones. But... I think in all the reviews or previews I've read and listened to about this World Cup, um, a lot of people are giving Ireland a, a, a great chance. But there's, it's an obvious thing to say, but two words that Ireland's hopes hang on here, and Johnny Sexton, <laughs> if he gets injured, and you talk about Evan Ferguson, Johnny Sexton's injury profile down through the years, he's had multiple concussions, Horrendous. he's had so many knocks. Yeah. So if, if he gets Again, injured... Again, puts everything misses, on the pitch. Everything goes on the pitch. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and if he if he gets injured and, and misses misses a big game or two, like Ireland's chances are gone, I would say. Like, that's that's it. Yeah, and I mean, and you said we should have a handy win against Romania, but the thing would be to avoid injury, wouldn't it? Of course, yeah. You want to get a win and get, get, get out of it without any knocks. But like Ireland... And, and look, every international team at a high level is reliant on their right half, but Ireland are so reliant on Sexton. And you have Ross Byrne and Jack Crowley behind him. Jack Crowley is an up-and-comer and possibly number two now, but he doesn't have a huge amount of experience. Ross Byrne is very solid, but none of them, neither of them are up to the level of Sexton, obviously enough. So hmm. if Ireland keeps Sexton fit and he comes through the matches, then they have a great chance. But if he gets a bang and he misses any 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 of the important matches, it's it's I doomsday know. stuff. I think he's such a pivotal sort of point in the whole team and and, and how he mm. works. You know, it's kind of and and, and again, tough group. Um, sort of of South Africa, New Zealand, France. Like we we would have to get two out of three of those wins really to get anywhere to break that duck of getting out of the quarter final, wouldn't we? Yeah, you'd want to be. I mean, they they'd be expecting to be obviously they win their first two games is the expectation. The South Africa game. If they could win that, brilliant. But 
they'd certainly be looking to beat Scotland and win three out of three out of the four and come through the group. But then you're going to be playing France and New Zealand. And That's the final. point. They meet, yeah. they meet tonight. Yeah. So who do you want out of those? It's it's not really a, it's sort of Hobson's choice there. It's not really a great option either way. But look at it, it's sort of you're probably getting ahead of ourselves again here. I think if they'd want to just come through the group unscathed as, as much as they can and Scott, look at Scotland it's going to be a really tricky final game in that group don't make any mistake mm. with that if South Africa beat Ireland and Ireland are going to that Scotland game needing to win to qualify that's that's going to be a tense enough occasion you know Scotland yeah. are no mugs and they'll fancy their chances there so I'm hopeful that we'll come out of the group you get past the quarter final then maybe things open up a little bit it's going to be really difficult um I'm Aside say, from um, Ireland, France and New Zealand is mm, going to be a cracker of a game, isn't it? I, I still remember you mentioned it yeah. to 2007 and them France standing right up to the hacker and putting it in their faces and then beating them yeah. was incredible. So that'll be a good game, won't it? That was an unbelievable game as well. It was in Cardiff, if I remember correctly, and they were they were kind of done and dusted at one point in that game and came back into it. So, yeah, that's going to, tonight's going to be a fantastic game. I think France will win that game. I think they're the form side at the moment. New Zealand have struggled a little bit in, in recent weeks. They got a hockey in from South Africa recently as well. They're under a little bit of pressure. Uh, they're missing that was so unusual to see them beaten yeah. by that, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah, it doesn't happen too often. So, you know, Ian Foster, the coach, is under an awful lot of pressure. I think France will win that game tonight. And France, I think, are... They were, I, I was thinking about it earlier. France are a little bit like Dublin in the football years ago. They always had the population. They always had the talent. Yeah. They just had a little bit of a psychological flaw. But once they got themselves organised, they're were, they were pretty much unstoppable. The Dubs have been like that for a long time. I think France are getting to that stage as well. And I think they've gotten past those mental frailties. And they look... They look. They would be my favourites to win it. I think they're they're an outstanding team. They're at well, home listen, as well. Listen, David. Thank you so much for that. Um, we have a great rugby weekend to look forward to. That's where we have to leave it for today. I'm Orla Carmody, standing in for Jerry Kelly for the next week. Thank you so much for your company. I'll be chatting to you next weekend or next week, I should say. And in the meantime, have a great weekend. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.